Amen. If you'll grab your copy of Scripture, open to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. You'll find that uh, in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1390. There towards the back of the New Testament, you find Peter's first epistle. It's been a profitable time on uh, Sunday nights as we've looked through the book of Jonah. Just grateful for that teaching and Pastor Rod. And I know that uh, I think the bulletin even today says yet again he'd be preaching tonight. So yet again, uh, you can't hold me responsible for anything that happens because his name's in the bulletin. So therefore, what I want to do is uh, I want to start something a little bit different. I want us to spend uh, the next uh, several weeks looking at the issue of love, but I want to look at love from a different perspective. I want us to begin to examine the way in which we love, the way we love God, and how do we relate to God, and what is that like? You know, this is an amazing church, and God continues to do amazing things among us, and I am forever grateful to Him for uh, the things that He's accomplishing and just the lives that He's changing. And yet, at the same time, I want to uh, encourage you tonight through God's Word and also uh, maybe get you to think in a a new way about the way in which you relate to our wonderful, loving, heavenly Father. So let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We receive it tonight as a gift, a perfect, infallible gift from You to us. Lord, thank You, God. We want to receive it tonight with joy and thanksgiving. And Lord, I pray that you'll give us ears to hear and hearts, Lord, to respond to what it is you have to say to us, Lord God. Will you, will you help us to be free uh, through the teaching of your word tonight to respond to you, Lord God, as you uh, instruct us it ought to be. And we're grateful, Father, for you. Thank you for this time. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look together... Uh, At, for example, John 14, this verse will come up on the screen. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. I think this particular passage of Scripture uh, played a huge role in my life and my development as a believer. Um, People grow through sanctification in different ways and at different rates. and, And obviously, my story is not exactly your story. And your story is different from the people around you and so on and so forth. But there are certain similarities in that we come to Christ... Um, through whatever means God uses to bring us there. But as we begin to grow, there are these various uh, turning points in our Christian life where we begin to see things. Suddenly, we have these, uh, these epiphanies where we're reading Scripture or we hear a sermon or something happens and we begin to see things clearly. And now the parts start to come together and it becomes it starts to make a whole. And this verse was part of my... Uh, just understanding of who God is in such a pivotal way in that when I became a believer, I would read that verse. If you love me, keep my commandments. I would read that verse as um, saying to me that if I love Jesus, what I need to do is keep his commandments. uh, And in keeping his commandments, it would prove that I love him. And though that is a way to interpret what he's saying, I believe that it's uh, just, it, it, it grossly falls short of all that is there. And I can remember realizing 
that I had no hope of keeping His commandments apart from His love, that His love empowered me to keep His commandments. And, and honestly, it, you, you and I, if we, if we just read little parts of the Bible or if we, uh, if we only are exposed to God's Word through a daily devotion or something of that nature, you're going to have a very hard time pulling all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I hope that this uh, series of messages will help you in seeing that, that it's God's love that, that enables us even to approach His commandments, much less keep them. And then through doing so, it's there, there's a wonderful other side to the coin of love. 1 John 5, 3, the Bible says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Another very similar statement. So what we could do is, and I think what a lot of people do is they would, they would deduct from these statements that love equals obedience or love equals duty. And though there is obedience in love and there is duty in love, is that all? Where's the other side? What is the fullness of what the Bible teaches? And certainly you've heard me say on a multitude of different occasions that love is primarily an action. For example, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave. So we see the, the response of God that the love for us caused the giving of His Son. So it is an action. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13... Uh, 4 through 7, the, the love chapter where we love to read these scriptures at weddings and at various times to, to be encouraged. The Bible says love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So we see that there's all of these uh, amazing uh, words to describe love, yet in the Greek, there's no adjectives. There are no adjectives in that entire passage of Scripture. It's all verbs and participles, and every single description used to describe love is an action. Those are all actions. So love is an action. It is even primarily an action, but it is not only in action. And that's a new sort of something we don't talk much about is the other side of love. Because before Paul says all of these things that love is, he quantifies the statement he's about to make by saying in verse 3 that though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. So in other words, prior to all of these, this amazing doxology on love, we see that love, it is action, but if the action is void of love, then it's really of no consequence. It's of no avail. It's of no, it's, it's not supernatural. So what, what we're saying here is that you can't reduce the love of God to obedience alone. You just simply cannot do that. And though obedience is part of love, it absolutely positively is, there's so much more. And I think that if you take what we're talking about in the way that we relate to God, and if you thought about this in the lens of a marriage, you would see such an amazing truth. Because, you know, marriages, uh, marriage can be the most amazing 
the most amazing experience that you have here on earth uh, on a human level. It truly can be phenomenal. And I have seen in my own life that as I grew as a believer and as I began to understand the way in which I am to relate to God and God relates to me, and I began to relate to my wife through that lens, the unbelievable impact that that has had on my marriage. And so I want you to understand that you and I can go through the motions of love and we can we can do the things that we're called to do and be obedient and really not accomplish what we uh, are intended to uh, accomplish and not and and miss on so much fullness just miss out on on the fullness of what love is so emotions feelings affections i want to to build a case tonight that all of those things cannot be taken out of the Christian experience. You simply cannot live the Christian life apart from your emotion and your feelings. You just simply cannot do that and, and, and live the full life that God has given us the opportunity to live. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to look at a passage of Scripture that's going to... Uh, get our thoughts around what the Bible's teaching, because I certainly don't want you to listen to what I think about something. Let's look at what God teaches about it. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, Peter says this, in, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the main point, verse 8. Whom having not been seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him yet, believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In other words, Peter is building a case that the mark of the true believer, if you look at what he says and sort of just take the pieces and assemble them backwards, follow the trail of what he's saying, that the salvation of our souls, the yield in our life of the salvation of our souls, is that though we don't see Him, yet in believing, in this process of relationship with our Lord through Jesus Christ, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, my burden in, in this series of sermons is this, that too many times people will read a text like this and just chalk this up to the way a person lives whose life is chronicled in the pages of Scripture. Like that Peter is some super Christian who experienced a walk with Christ that we could never experience, who knows God, who possesses the Spirit of God in a way that we could never possess. And so therefore, when we read this, we think, well, that's what would happen if you were a disciple or an apostle. That's the experience you would have. But for us today, I mean, come on, joy inexpressible, to which I say, yes, exactly. That is exactly what the Bible is teaching. That is exactly what I believe is right there for uh, the taking. That, you know, the, the great preacher, probably the greatest 
preacher, the greatest American preacher who's ever lived is Jonathan Edwards. And he made the statement that true religion consists of holy affections. That it is the affections that really is going to, uh, of your heart, the desires of your heart, the things that you uh, find most precious and that you long for, the things that are going to build in you a religion that is going to create and yield an amazing uh, fruit-producing life. And it, it's, it's baffling to me that people can come in contact with salvation, can be a part of a, a body of Christ, can participate in Christian activities, can have sort of all the trappings of uh, the Christian life and yet be void of inexpressible joy. Now, this doesn't mean that there won't be times of sorrow. This doesn't mean that there won't be times of struggle and, and suffering. But what it does mean, and what I'd like to challenge you tonight to do, is to I would like for you to begin to, to think of when was the last time that you responded to God with inexpressible joy and rejoicing. Because my hope is, is that that is a... Uh, a part of your life. It's, a, it's something that is not foreign to you. It's something that you can relate to, that you can uh, grab a hold of and realize that, you know, this God whom we serve, who has placed Himself within us, if we, if we ever began to... You ever hear people talk about, you know, what the human brain is capable of and how we all exist, you know, using 10 or 15%. And, you know, if we could use half of the brain we had, we'd all be like Rain Man, you know, and just do all this. And I actually was uh, saw this documentary on TV about this young man uh, who is... Uh, basically, he has a, a mild form of Asperger's combined with this other uh, brain disorder and between the two of them he literally has such an un people pay money to come and fill arenas and watch him recite uh numbers he 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 speaks nine different languages they that whenever he's challenged by something he can't do then he just immediately goes and does that icelandic is supposedly the most difficult language on the planet earth to learn so he decided that he would prove that he could do anything. And so he went to Iceland and uh, he said he would learn the language in seven days. And in seven days he spoke fluent. He recited numbers from memory for five and a half hours without missing a single number. He takes the number pi and then plays that out. And he sits there for five and a half hours. Hours, y'all. This is what the brain is capable of. And here's my point. That's nothing compared to what the Spirit is capable of. And my point is that I really believe that so many times we're walking around using just the, the tiniest portion of what's available to us because, let's face it, we're not desperate. 
We're just not desperate. And when you're not desperate, you just, you know, and, and the thing is we hear uh, a lot of times we hear amazing stories of unbelievable things that God is doing uh, on foreign soil and in other places where there's great desperation and people cry out to God and trust Him for amazing things because there is no other alternative. And yet we, you know, that's not an everyday part of our affluent experience. But I pray that, that it... It could be and it should be that we should begin to utilize that which is within us and and walk with God in such a way that inexpressible joy would be a common part of our lives. So the saints of God, number one, the saints of God are characterized in Scripture as those who are affected by the things of God. When you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament in, in, in particular, what you find is that those who are the saints of God, but all throughout Scripture, the ones that are authentic, the ones that God is displaying as these are saints of God, they are characterized as people who are affected by the things of God. Now, for example, because I could give you a thousand examples, but one example would be in the way in which they respond to sin. Because here is something that we uh, need to a fresh reminder on. For example, David responding to his sin in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. In other words, We all have heard that verse before. We all uh, sing songs that reference that and we are familiar with that. But here's the thing. Does that happen to you? Do you respond to sin in that way? In other words, we just sort of, again, we go, well, that's David. He was a man after God's own heart. But what about us? In other words, a contrite, broken spirit. That's what God describes as the way saints respond. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I love this passage of Scripture where Paul is uh, referring to sort of the, the, the harm that the first letter caused the Corinthians. And so we know that Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthian church. We have two in Scripture. Uh, the one that we don't have is, is referred to as the harsh letter. So 1 Corinthians is pretty harsh and it's pretty corrective in nature. And Paul is, is now following that up and he, he says to the church at Corinth, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you may, that you were made sorry, because he called them to task. He showed them their error. He said, here's where you're wrong. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Is it that it was a good thing that you might suffer loss uh, from us and nothing, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading unto salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And so there's a clear delineation in Scripture between the sorrow of God and the sorrow of the world. Now again, this is another thing for us to just think about for a moment. How does the sorrow in your life and in my life with regards to our sin, differ from the sorrow of the world. Because they are distinctly different. Yet oftentimes in our lives, you cannot tell the difference. We can't tell the difference. If somebody is brokenhearted over the consequences of what they've done, or if they're genuinely repentant and 
brokenhearted with a contrite spirit before God over what they have done. You see? Because, let's face it, we're like little children, you know, and we, we, it's all about staying out of trouble. And a lot of times we want to relate to God as a, a parent and we just don't want to get a whipping. But you know what? When you do that, you are shortchanging your walk with the Lord. You're shortchanging the intimacy that is available to you. Again, in, in Psalm 51, David says in verse 7 and 8, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. What a beautiful picture of repentance. In other words, as he, he, he's not trying to weasel his way out of anything, but he genuinely, he's asking God for joy and gladness in the midst of the brokenness that his, the, the weight of his sin makes him feel as if his bones have been broken by God. But he's asking for joy. You see, you know what, you know what we do? Instead of repenting, we pout. We have some godly pouting. And so we just pout before God because we've been caught in our sin or because there's consequences of our sin. And we miss this. We miss the opportunity to have our bones broken by God and to cry out to Him for joy. For joy inexpressible. So the Bible teaches that See, part of all this is, is identifying that, that as we look at how we love God, what inevitably comes out of this conversation is the analysis of whether or not you're truly converted. Because, again, back to where I started, you simply cannot do what, John, uh, what Jesus commands in the book of John, if you love me, keep my commandments. You can't do that. Apart, you cannot do that. You can't, you can't respond to that verse if you're not a Christian. And so in this conversation comes, am I truly converted? And so the Bible gives us nine fruit of the Spirit in the list in Galatians 5. Nine things, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now I want you to look at that list and I want you to think about how many of the things on that list can you accomplish apart from emotion? How many of those things can uh, be produced in your life just out of duty or obligation? You see, you can, you know, I, I, can, I can come home and I can bring my wife flowers. I can mechanically go to the store, buy the flowers, get the flowers, come home. Sorry, honey, I don't do this as much as I should. Come home and then give my wife flowers and then... In my heart, think, I'm doing this because I know I should do this. I could even tell her that I'm doing this because that's what I should do. Because maybe it's Valentine's Day or it's her birthday or whatever the case may be. And boy, that's going to give her inexpressible joy. Here's your flowers that I had to buy you. Enjoy them. And my point is, that's not the way we're to relate to God. And so there's, there's 
fruit that is produced when the Spirit is within us. And that fruit bears witness to the fact that we've been converted because apart from conversion, that can't be manifest. It can't happen. So unconverted people can love in a worldly way. You see, they can have joy. They can have peace. But they can't have it this way. But if, if it all looks the same... See, here's, here's the thing. Why is it so hard for us to tell who's genuine and who's not? Because of what I'm talking about. Because if we were walking in an intimate relationship with God in the fullness of what's available to us, I think it would be so utterly apparent And one of the things that as I've thought this through, one of the things that I think that happened in my own life was that when this switch went off in my heart and suddenly I began to see the fullness of what God teaches, it radically altered my life. It radically altered the fruit that I began to produce. And then I just sort of got swept up in the current of His Spirit. And so just one thing after another after another, and the next thing you know, I'm in the ministry. But the point is, is that it was, it's this understanding of what is available. Now you, you won't tell me this. You could, but you won't, typically. But you'll tell other people. That you just, you know, you're, I don't know. You know you're a Christian and you love God and you know He loves you, but you just feel like you're, I don't know, you, you just, you're, you're just in a, a, a rut. Or maybe you would say you're backslidden. Or you feel like you're in a, a ditch. Or you're... I don't get that. I'm just being honest. I don't get that. I don't get... Well, God, I'm feeling kind of distant from you. So then I'm not going to read the Word because... I don't have time or I don't... I, mean, I, just, I don't even know how to explain it to you because it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like saying my foot hurts, so I, what I need is a bigger mallet to keep smashing it. Well, what is this for? I mean, I'm not saying that you, you're always as hot for the things of God, uh, that it's always consistently burning at this unbelievable fever pitch level. But when it's not, isn't that when I just want to immediately, when it's not, I just take off running. Like, I know the way home. I'm not sitting around going, well, I'm lost and a bird came along and ate all the breadcrumbs and so I don't know where to get back. I know how to get back. So when I feel myself distant or getting cold... I run to Him. I run to that familiar, intimate relationship. I run to His Word. I run to Him in prayer. I run run to Him because I know that place. But if you don't know that place, where do you run? And maybe that's why... Maybe maybe you're here tonight and you're just like, I'm just... I felt like that for forever. Or for my whole Christian walk. Or for the last year. Or for... In other words, it would be like me saying that I I feel alone 
and unloved and just unfulfilled in my life. And there's my family, my wife and my children standing there with their arms open. My kids are saying, Dad, here we are. Come on. Hey, Dad. Dad, come home. And my wife's saying, Honey, come come home. We love you. No, no. I'm here. I'm stuck here. Why would you not run to that? And so David gets that. Paul gets that. Peter gets that. Titus 2 says this. Thinking about how we intersect our walk with God, our relationship with God, with emotional love. Look at what the Bible says in Titus 2. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for for Himself His own special people. Now that's good news, but look at what it says. What are we for good works? Now can you be zealous about something and not be emotionally vested and connected to it? You see, it doesn't say that they're going to begrudgingly do good things. It doesn't say they're going to be like Boy Scouts or the Kiwanis Club or they're going to be, you know, the lots of good people doing good things all over the place. No, it's different. In other words, here's what I'm saying. If you, if you go down to the soup kitchen, if you go down to feed my sheep and jump in there alongside all those people and serve food to the homeless down there, then, which there's, A lot of people that are down there that are wonderful, redeemed people of God. And then there's other people who are just people down there who, you know, the next week are serving animals at the animal shelter. And the next week, and then they're just people who like to do good deeds. And here's my point. You ought to stand out from them. In other words, you ought to have a zeal in you that they don't have. You're not just serving food, but you're serving it with zeal. You see? No one has to wind me up and go, all right, come on, come on. We're going to get excited about preaching tonight. It's there all the time. And all you have to do is just give me a little window and I'm going to jump in and go. And then, you know, you're going to be thinking, what did I open this up for? It's just there all the time. I don't need any help getting excited. There's zeal. It's emotion. Second thing, God demands. So not only are... In the Bible, the saints of God characterize as people who are affected by the things of God. But second of all, God demands that we relate to Him emotionally. That we connect to Him on an emotional level. Not only emotion, but an emotional level. Here's what I think about. Do you know... Now, some of you, especially those of you over there, don't know this. But there used to be... that This is the way things used to work in the United States. You used to go to the gas station and get gas. And it would go like this. You would drive up to the gas pump. You would actually pump the gas in your car. Then you would go inside and pay for it. You don't do that anymore. And here's the deal. So now, like my kids are starting to drive and everything. Well, guess what's the first thing that you don't think about that you can't drive without? you got to have a credit card or a debit card. You know why? Because if you pull up to the pump and flip the little doodad and stick the thing in there and smile like, I'm really honest, you can trust me, you'll be there all day long. They'll never turn the pump on. You know why? I've never stolen gas in my life. 
but they won't turn the pump on for me. So a couple people ruined it for everyone, right? Well, that's what I think happened in Christianity with relation to being emotional. Some people came along and started denominations that were wholly based on emotion. And so everyone else went running away from emotion, going, we don't want that, we don't want that, we don't want that, we don't want that. And we've, we've lost something wonderful because we're afraid that we're going to turn into some fanatical people who only exist on emotion. And so I guess I'm just fanatical. Let me ask you a question. If you, if you were to win the lottery and you, uh, at the moment of finding out that you've won the lottery and however much the lottery might be, you responded without emotion. Everyone who sees that would be left to conclude one of the following things. Number one, you're already wealthy beyond your means, right? Number two, you just don't care about things about money. Like somebody gave you the ticket, you didn't even want it, and you're totally like uh, anti-money, and you trade in cabbage, and so you don't care about any of that, and so that's who you are. Or uh, the, the people telling you that you're hearing... The people telling you that you won the lottery are not people that you trust or they speak Swahili and you don't know what they're saying. But it would have to be one of those things. Because you can't come up with any rational explanation how a person would come in contact with the greatest news they've ever heard and not respond emotionally, yet I see it happen all the time. Why? Why? Why do the same people that yell at the TV, scream at their favorite sports team, dance around their house to their music, do all sorts of emotional ways of responding to things in your life, come in church and you look like a dead knot on a rotten log? Why? Help me. I'm looking for answers here. Is there any scenario... Now, maybe initially when people come to Christ, that's understandable because they have no way of knowing the fullness of what has just happened to them. And so people to varying degrees, I know that when I got born again, basically I just knew I was a sinner doomed doomed for hell and that God was forgiving me of my sin and that I'd be with Him in heaven forever. And that was great news to me. But I didn't know. I didn't know about the spirit that I was going to be able to fellowship with. It was going to possess me. That I was going to have the still small voice that led me and guided me. I didn't know that. I didn't know that as I began to read scripture, it was going to come alive. I didn't know all that. So it was good, but I didn't know. So maybe that's understandable. But what about us who have been Christians, who have been believers for some time? Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, he says this, that... Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. I want you to notice all of the the things you can't do without emotion in this text. 
Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I mean, that is an emotionally packed statement. Psalm 100 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Paul says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The great commandment, for goodness sakes, is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The word heart there, that, that, that word in the Greek is not our inner constitution, but it is the seat of our emotions, that we are to love God with our heart, with the seat of our emotions. So my question is, is biblical love emotional? It's not only emotional. But it is emotional. And that's what I'm, I'm wanting us to, to see. Not that you are not responding to God in phenomenal ways, but simply that I want us all to be a people who experience the fullness of all that God has for us. So let me just end by quantifying all of this with a couple statements. Number one, feelings of love are no substitute for actions of love. Feelings of love are not a substitute for actions of love. In other words, we need to respond in love whether we feel like it or not. We're not led by feelings, okay? Feelings aren't the the determining factor, but they're part of the equation. The Bible says in 1 John 3, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, that we're to respond, okay? So it's not a a substitute for actions of love, but it's part of it. Secondly, apart from love, all of our actions can merely... The best we could hope for is that they result in good deeds. See, apart from love, we're just doing things. And they may be good deeds, and they may indeed help people. But they're not what's supernaturally intended. They're not at all what we're capable of. Notice what the Bible says in Micah 6, 8, a wonderful scripture that we sing and, and know all the, all the time. We, we talk about this. The Bible says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy? Now, notice what the Bible says, and walk humbly with your God. That it's, it's and, it's both and. It's that you do justly, but you love mercy. So if you just do justly, in other words, we need to do justly, but we need to love mercy. So as we're wide, here's the question, this is what God's saying. As you're doing justly, why are you doing it? And it ought to be because you love mercy. That you see you're overwhelmed, you're emotionally vested and connected to mercy. So... It's a Sunday night crowd. Uh, the danger here in this room is not that uh, a bunch of you fly off the handle and become a bunch of uh, emotional basket cases. I don't think that's the danger. 
I think I'm safe here. If I were to try to preach this message on Sunday morning, I'd spend so much time trying to box everything in because people would want to take this thing and run with it and get crazy and it would be a problem. But for you, that's not the danger. What is the danger? The danger is is that you might go through the motions of doing good things and miss the fullness of what's there. The danger is that you might not be able to discern the fruit of the Spirit in yourselves, in your loved ones, and in the people around you because you're not familiar with what an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. And that you can emotionally connect with the Lord in the same way that you emotionally connect with your spouse or with your children or how you, you know, that you respond emotionally. You're grounded in truth. But emotion is part of the equation. Otherwise, what you wind up is, you wind up denying the fact that we have hearts that are prone to wander. We're sinners. And our hearts, left unchecked, will be adulterous, just vagrants as they peruse the world for something to love other than God. That's exactly what our hearts will do. So what, what do you do? You recognize that that's your tendency and you, you respond accordingly. And you recognize that duty without delight is drudgery. It's simple drudgery. And that if you find yourself doing things in the name of the Lord and their drudgery, it's not that you're doing the wrong thing. I don't think it's that you're... Because it's, it's what the Lord calls you to do. So oftentimes what we do is we jump from this to this to this to this. And so we have these puddle jumping Christians that go over here and try this and try that and try this and try that and try... Because what they're looking for is fulfillment. The problem is not what they're doing. The problem is in how they're doing it. The problem is in their intimate relationship. Because here's what I'm telling you. When you are hugged up close to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're walking in intimacy with Him... Whatever you're doing in His name, you will find yourself zealous with inexpressible joy. You'll, end, you'll see God using the most minute, simple things to, to produce joy in other people and fruit in what you're doing. And you'll find fulfillment and satisfaction. And you won't always be looking at other people. You won't be grumbling because there's not a line of people waiting to help you or people don't appreciate what you're doing. It's almost like you're in this wonderful little utopia where God and you are just pressing ahead. And it's amazing. And when you find yourself struggling, when you find yourself going uphill and you're getting tired and you're starting to run out of steam, then know the way home. I pray. Oh, how I pray for you. I pray that you would know that what I'm talking about would not seem foreign to you. So many times, as I, I see your faces, as I pray, I emotionally connect with you, how God loves you, the, the, the joy inexpressible that I have the opportunity to watch God work in you. 
Sometimes it's just the simplest things. Sometimes I can just be sitting in my truck and see a person, one of you walking across the parking lot and tears are just run down my face. Joy, and you're just walking across the parking lot and you have no... And that's my point. Because I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful I'm not who I used to be. I'm so thankful that I can know God and connect with Him. You know, and it just, it just permeates our lives. It permeates the way that we approach Him in worship, in the way that we respond to Him, in the way that we, you know, in what you hear. And so, so many times as I am up here preaching, I'm, I'm constantly praying and seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit as to what I'm saying, but what are you hearing? And in this room, and then I'm done. If I were to begin to start talking about faithfulness and diligence in, in reading your Bible, it just immediately begins to divide you into groups. So there's a group of you that immediately are condemned because you're, you're not faithful in reading the Word of God. And so you hear a message like this and you just feel like, what a fraud, what a failure I am. Why can't I do that? I try and I fail and I try and I fail. And so you just are condemned. Then there's another group of you who you read the Word of God, but it's out of duty. And so you puff up with pride and think, well, that's not me. Boy, I haven't missed a day this whole year. I mean, I got the boxes checked. But all you're doing is trying to get through the words that even as you're reading, you're not even thinking about what you're reading. And then you're, I'm done, put it aside and away you go. But then there's another group. There's a group of people who find themselves thirsty at times. You see, you, you know what I'm talking about. You're thirsty. And there's only one thing that's going to quench your thirst. You don't want to, you don't want to listen to a sermon. You don't want to read a Christian book. You don't want to sing a praise song. You want this nectar right here. Because you know that it's the way home. And you connect emotionally with the writer of this book. It actually is a love letter to you and you respond to him in that way and and you may you've got your own way of of walking in this journey and so there's seasons of my life where i might read one passage of scripture and just chew on it every day for a week i may read chapters i may read hours i may it's but you see i'm not I, there's no I've, I've punched the legalistic Pharisee in my mind in the face and told him to shut up and his jaws wired shut. I don't care what he has to say. I know how to love my wife because I love her. I know how to love this because I love him. And I want to connect with God on more than just a duty level. I want to connect with them on an emotional level. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of invitation. Then I'm going to ask the band to come back up and I want us to
to come to the altar and pray. Pray where you are. Uh, respond to, to God's Word. And then I want us to, to close tonight with, uh, by singing uh, a couple songs and having a time of intercessory prayer. And I want you to understand that tonight, if, if what I've talked about just seems like this crazy foreign concept to you, would you consider that maybe, maybe tonight is the night you need to come and you need to allow God to save you? Therefore, implanting His Spirit within you so that you can even begin the journey that I'm talking about. Because apart from conversion, apart from a new birth, apart from a relation, you've got to be a son or daughter of the King to respond to God in this way. It cannot work in the flesh. And as you begin to read the New Testament, you'll begin to see through this lens exactly what the Bible is calling us to in this relationship. Let's stand, bow our heads, close our eyes. I know normally in this time I'd ask you to pray for those around you. Right now I'd ask you to just pray for yourself. Just have a personal time with God where you are. Father, I pray right now, Lord God, that all of us, Lord, would recognize who you have revealed yourself to be. And Lord, that we would respond to you, that we would desire to walk in the fullness of all that's available to us in you, Lord, through life, empowered by your Spirit, God. Lord, that you, you, you love, you love your children emotionally. You weep over our sin. Father God, the book of Zephaniah says that you, you dance over us in joy. Father, I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts, Lord, to all that can be. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, as Abba, Father, I pray right now that they would surrender their self, throw their self on the foot of the cross and that your mercy would overwhelm them unto salvation for your glory in Jesus' name.